0: This is the No Dogma Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan. And this evening, I'm joined by Angela Dugan, Director of the Chicago Office of Polaris Solutions. Thank you very much for taking time out of your evening, Angela.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on again.
0: Yeah, and this is your second time. So for people who didn't listen to our first podcast, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, like you said, Angela Dugan. So I live in the Chicago area. I work for Polaris Solutions. I'm the Director of the Chicago Office. And what that means is... Uh, I have responsibilities from uh, kind of a people management perspective, from a leadership perspective. I do a little account management. I do some agile coaching. Um, so it really means that that I kind of pitch in wherever wherever I'm needed. Um, and it's been, it's been pretty exciting. I've been in the role for, uh, gosh, about a year and a half now.
0: Prior to that, though, you were more, I'd say, more day-to-day technical. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So p- prior to that, I, I did a lot of like implementations on with Team Foundation Server. I did some QA consulting, and then uh, maybe four or five years ago, I moved into the agile coaching space. So I started doing Scrum training, agile training um coaching of teams and executives and and helping support agile transformations I, I still get to do that on occasion which is something I really love to do so I'm, I'm glad I still get to do it once in a while but uh, it's, a, it's a little harder to uh, to do full time with with the other things that I do
0: so of those ones the let's say the the technical the heavy technical the agile coaching and now the the managing of the let's say the office the director of the office which of those have you enjoyed the most?
1: Oh, my gosh. I feel like that's asking a parent to pick their favorite kid, sure. right? Sure. <laughs> so
0: everyone should be able to.
1: Right. Um, I Honestly, I feel like I'm really enjoying the people leadership part of the director role. And I think, I think that's partly because I still get to leverage a lot of the same kind of knowledge and skills that I would when I was an Agile coach. So it's understanding... Motivations and career aspirations and personalities and and trying to get all of that to gel. So it's it's kind of nice because I didn't completely leave behind everything that I did as an agile coach. I just focus it inwards on our our own team members instead of outwards on our clients.
0: It sounds like you know your three roles or no, those those three recent roles are going to be a good foundation of what we're going to talk about tonight. Sort of teams, how you build teams, what make up teams, but The very first question is, how do you define what a team is?
1: (laughs) So defining a team is is interesting because I feel like if you had asked me at five different points in my career, I probably would have given you five different answers, right? So, you know, straight out of college, I probably would have been like, oh, yeah, the team, that's that group of people. I sit in those cubes and and we're all kind of working on the same project. And, you know, if you were to ask me, say, two weeks ago, I'd give a very different answer because you, you can easily work with people proximity-wise, but not actually have any dependence on one another, not kind of feel the need to support each other. So I, I feel like definitely the way I define teams is much different now. Um, and and some of that is, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with more of a work group scenario, which is how I would describe kind of that first one. Like you're a working group, like you're working on stuff, you're a group of people, but you're not necessarily the what I would personally call a team um, so i I'm a big fan of, uh, so Google did a lot of work. I, I feel like at this point, most everyone is at least familiar with Project Aristotle. Um, but they spent a whole lot of time kind of pulling apart what what makes teams effective and and essentially what what works in terms of motivation and what are demotivators and and what they came down to, they they there's this one sentence that I kind of picked out of their, their um, high level summary and it was that team members need one another to get one, get their work done. And it was the needs one another that really kind of hit home for me and that I honed in on.
0: So in that perspective, you know, you often hear about every developer should be full stack. I want to focus it. We're going to come a little broader, but you, you hear this thing about everyone should be full stack. Everyone should be able to do everything. If everyone can do everything, then why would you need other people?
1: Yeah, and that's that's an interesting one because I I think it started in the right place, and I think like a lot of the things you hear people talking about, whether it's agile or not, right? Because I think a lot of these concepts are applicable regardless of what methodology you're you're um, subscribing to. But the whole multifunctional teams or or cross functional, however you want to call it, I think it's more about you know, when need be, we could pitch in and help people, right? Like I may not be a QA expert, but if you need me to run some test cases to help the team get through a tight spot, I can do that. I may not be a whiz at react, but man, if you need someone to slam out a couple of quick pages, because otherwise the team is not going to hit their goal. And otherwise I literally would be doing nothing. Um, to me, that's how I see a cross-functional team is we can swarm, we can find ways to support each other you know, we're willing to be cross-functional and not just I'm the person who writes the code or I'm the person who runs the test. And, and it's not my job to do that other thing.
0: I'm going to come back a little bit more broad question now. What what do you think makes a good team?
1: <laughs> so I, I, I definitely like the idea that people need one to need one another to get work done. I, I think that that if you unpack that, there's a whole lot there. So Um, I kind of talk about it a couple of ways, right? So having a good team and there's having a good team. And then there's kind of supporting that, that team as a lead, right? So I think strong teams, like they, they have each other's backs. They have shared goals. They're willing to like swarm on deliverables. So they know what the goal is and they know when they're not making it. And instead of shifting blame or pointing fingers, they're like, heck, like, let's just figure out how to get this done. Right? Like, Maybe I drop the thing I'm doing because it's less important and I work on the thing that you're doing with you to get it done because at the end of the day, like having 10 things half done is not valuable, but having four or five things completely done is totally valuable, but it's, it's a much different way about thinking about things. So kind of goes back to the, we need each other to get things done, right? If you've got six people that can completely function separately, they have different goals, um, they have no need to interact or check with each other for dependencies. To me, that's, again, that's a work group. That's not really a team.
0: You, in your presentations on this topic, you you focus uh, part of it on the idea of introverts and extroverts. Why are those two things important for teams?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> the funny thing is the way I came into that was essentially you you would talk about forming a team and pulling people in and, and you would hear people throw out statements like, Oh, that person is an introvert. We can't have them on the team. Like they just want to work alone. You know, they don't want to work with other people and you start to hear it enough that it kind of gets under your skin a little bit. Cause it's one of those things where I'm not a psychology major, right? Computer science, but it's one of those things that, you know, when you become a people manager, like you you do have to start to understand like, what do those things mean? And and how do I effectively interact? Because I can't, I can't treat everybody the same, right? Like there's, I feel like people say that like, Oh, we need to treat everyone the same. But to some extent, you really do need to interact with people a little bit differently. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of myths about introverts versus extroverts. Um, so in my talk, I get a little bit into the psychology. Again, You know, I'm not trying to act like I'm a, I'm a total expert, but I know enough to be dangerous. And so I, I talk about the fact that introversion and extroversion is really about preferences and how do you prefer to kind of interact with your environment and, and what do you prefer in, in terms of how you work? And um, one of the things I talk about is uh, introverts get stereotyped as like quiet and they don't want to talk to people and they just want to be left alone. And it's not quite that simple. Um, Introverts like they're reflective reserved, which means maybe they tend to be a little bit less ambitious about putting out their opinion or jumping into a conversation because they want more time to think about it. They're, they're certainly comfortable working alone and they may prefer to go off and problem solve by themselves. That doesn't mean they're always going to be like that, but Given the choice, they may want to go kind of ruminate on something and then come back. They prefer to have closer friends and fewer of them. And they spend more time thinking about things than doing, right? That doesn't necessarily mean they don't want to work with other people. And and the other interesting thing is someone being quiet and shy doesn't necessarily mean they're an introvert. Uh, it's interesting. I started to look into like, what actually is that? And, and the thing that I saw was that there's essentially there's social anxiety, which is like this fear that you're going to be judged harshly by the people around you. And then that forces you to not want to put yourself out there or take risks. And a lot of people will confuse that with introversion. Whereas like, I will completely come out and say that I am a com, I am an extrovert with social anxiety. Like I want to jump into the conversations. I want to pull multiple people in. I want to talk out loud. I want to write on whiteboards, but I'm still sitting there going, Oh my God, what if I do the wrong thing? And there are people who assume that I'm an introvert because I can come across as quiet and shy when it's really, I'm an extrovert that is like shriveling because I'm like, Oh my God, I want to get out there and, and talk out loud and brainstorm with this group. But I'm so afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I talk about the fact that like, I'm the extrovert in my relationship. My husband is the introvert, but he is the loud, boisterous one. And I'm the one that'll come across quiet and shy, but it's, it, it's just, it's so interesting. And that the point really is that you can't make an assumption based on outward appearances. You really do need to understand which side people might fall on. Or in some cases I talk about ambiversion, which is you're not always one thing or the other. Like I totally an extrovert. Like you, you've met me at several conferences now, Brian, you know, I am not afraid to like work the room and meet everybody and, and like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, I'd love to be on your podcast, but I get to a point where I'm like, I'm done. I, I just, I need to go back to my room and kind of like have a little bit of quiet time. And then the next day I'm super charged up and I want to do it again. So it's, it's really interesting. Like it, there's a lot to dig into there.
0: There's a couple of points I want to bring up. Our previous podcast was on imposter syndrome. <laughs> and, you know, what you're saying here kind of reminds me of what we talked about in that case. You know, oh, I've got something to say, but I don't want to say it in case it's wrong or whatever it happens to be. And then on the other point, there's a, a very well-known speaker. I won't say who it is. Um is. I've met him at a couple of conferences. And I remember one evening we were sitting in the bar, a group of us, and he sighs and says, I've used all my extrovert points, (laughs) you know, and this was a man who I'd see going around talking to everyone, treating everyone incredibly well, but it's not that he isn't an extrovert. It's that it's effort for him. And then when he gets tired, that's it. He pass and go
1: a (laughs) hundred percent. I it's, it's interesting because they, they talk about how extroverts get energy from being around people, but that energy isn't limitless. Like I, You know, if if I look at, you know, like a four or five day conference by day three, I start to get close to the end of the night and I'm like, I'm out (laughs) because I'm just physically tired. Like it's, it's, it takes a lot of energy to keep that up, right? Like all that talking and all that running around, like sometimes it's literally just a physical, I need to go put my feet up and kick back for a little bit. Doesn't mean that suddenly I've lost my ability to be an extrovert forever, but I still need time to recharge. <laughs> no, I
0: to get back to our teams, teams usually have a manager, but you know sometimes they people refer to them as leaders. I think there's a difference. What would you say?
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree because even if I look at my own role as a director, I would say that I absolutely have parts of my job that are very managerial and I have parts of my job that are totally about leadership. And when I think about a manager, right. And, and people, people in tech might, might often either think of like their direct manager at work, or maybe a project manager that's, that's running a project that they're on. And if you think about what they do, it's, it's kind of about like keeping track of things. Like when I think about my manager duties, it's things like approving time cards, approving expenses, ask, answering HR questions, So it's much about managing the day to day and kind of keeping the lights on and keeping the business humming. Like that's, that's what I consider my managerial duties. Um, Again, not claiming to to be the ultimate expert on this, but um, on the leadership side, I would say that's where you start seeing things like, you know, (laughs) empathy for my employees and like listening to the things they're struggling with and understanding what their career aspirations are and, and kind of digging into, are they an introvert or are they an extrovert? Like, do we need to have more time in one-on-ones or would they rather interact with me in a large group setting? Some of that does fall under my manager duties, but there is a certain amount of leadership that has to go into that to make me good at being a good manager, or at least what I think people perceive as a good manager. A lot of times I feel like you'll hear people talk about, oh, are such a bad manager. Uh, and sometimes they're put into a role that's just not natural for them. Maybe as a manager, right, they're, they're, they're being asked to do a lot of things that just don't align with the things that excite them or they struggle with things like mediation or empathy or coaching. Like those are hard things. Those are Those are not things that you just kind of start doing out of the blue, especially if you have no experience or passion for it.
0: Do you think it's kind of a problem or a common problem in our industry that the path for developers generally leads to management of other people? And, you know, if you want to keep getting promoted and keep increasing your salary in a lot of companies, that's your only option.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I do think that's true. And and it's funny because I've sat at a number of roundtables recently with people in my role and, and sometimes executive level who we struggle with that because we want to have, I call it a career jungle gym instead of a ladder, right? Cause you can kind of go all over the place instead of just up. Um, but up doesn't have to be managing people up could be, you know, being a, being a better thought leader or, kind of managing where the business goes from a technology perspective and not managing people. At our company, we actually have something that we call practice leads. So we have practice areas that focus on cloud and agile and DevOps and development, and each one of them has a lead who part of their job is helping us steer the ship in the right direction. Like, what are the technologies of the next six months, two years, five years? Like, where should we be moving as a company? What should we be training people on uh, they also keep us in check in terms of, hey, we're talking to a client about doing that kind of engagement. We want thought leadership to be part of those conversations to make sure that that we're we're doing the right things for our clients and that everybody who's on that team kind of understands where they should be going and, and has somebody to get coached or ask questions, things like that. So it, it can it can be tricky for sure in IT and and I have, you know, I'm not going to say I haven't run into some really great managers because I have, but I've also run into a handful of people that even themselves, they would admit like, I've been a developer for 10 years and they didn't know what to do with me. So they promoted me to a manager and it's clear that they're not happy. Doesn't make them a bad person. It just means that, you know, somebody put them in a role that it's, it's not a good fit for them. Uh, but it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I, I, I think we're trying to address it at our company. Um, and I've certainly, you know, I've got some other folks that I know in the industry that we kind of mind meld once a quarter or so to talk about it. Cause it is it like, you know, it's a challenge.
0: That leads me very nicely on to the next question was how do you find the strengths of people? And then, and then uh, more broadly, the strengths of a team.
1: <laughs> so, so, so that one is interesting because you know, some of it is always going to come down to, having conversations and just sitting and talking to people, right? And it's, there are certainly tools that that I can talk about because there's a few that I've found that I find very interesting and and sometimes they're polarizing. I've given talks where people are like, oh, that tool is garbage or you can't rely on those tools. Um, And and that's not the only way to do it. So I would always start with a conversation. Sometimes it's just getting to know them literally as a human being, like what makes them tick? What are the things that get them excited and jazzed in the morning? What are the, what's the project that they like the least and why that can start to give you some ideas of what people's individual strengths are, where they're going to be the strongest and what is their kind of highest purpose, best use. Um, and then there are some interesting tools. So I, I like things like Myers-Briggs and I know I feel like just saying that I'm cringing, thinking about the people listening to the podcast going, Oh, that psychology nonsense. Um, it's interesting because the stuff that you get out of like Myers-Briggs for instance, it talks about preferences. It's it's not etched in stone. I've taken it several times over the course of my life, and my results have shifted slightly. Like one or two of the letters have changed over the last twenty years, which makes sense. Um, and it gives you a starting point. So I, I remember one of the other ones I like is Clifton Strengths Finder. I remember doing that when I worked at Microsoft. We took it, and then um, I was actually at a client a couple of years ago. And the manager asked me to take the Clifton Strengths Finder. And I was like, wow, that's super interesting. I mean, I'm here as an agile coach. And and it turned out that he like he loved it. He used it to understand what, what interested people, what was their highest purpose, best use. And he ended up kind of shifting how myself and my team member like the things that we did based on our, our strengths. And it it actually, to his credit, like we ended up in a much better place. So the other thing I like about them is it gives you a conversation point, right? Because you take Myers-Briggs and um, I'm trying to remember where I fall on Myers-Briggs. Um, I, I know it's it's e, ENFJ, so that's extroverted, um, intuitive, feeling, and judging. <laughs> it's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, and, and it's funny cause there's, there's this website called 16 personalities that then maps it to people. And when I, and when I looked at it, it's been like five or six years since I looked at it, it's called the protagonist and it's people who are charismatic, they're natural leaders. They love to figure out how to create these strong teams by understanding what makes people tick. And I was like, wow, like that's crazy that I ended up exactly where like, that test said I would be a good fit. And and again, I know it's not the Holy grail and it's not perfect for everybody, but if someone is sitting there going, I don't know if I'm an extrovert or an introvert, have them take the test. They might be surprised. And then it can be a conversation starter to go, huh? So you thought you were an introvert. This said you're an extrovert. Let's talk about why it might be different. Maybe, maybe it's wrong, right? Or maybe it's right, but they just misunderstood what extroverted really meant. Uh, and, Treating someone like an extrovert versus treating someone like an introvert in terms of how you meet with them, how you talk with them, how you ask them to solve problems, putting them in the wrong bucket can put them in a very uncomfortable spot. Um, I, a good example would be I remember there there would be times where, you know, as a consultant, sometimes I was the only person going out to a client and I'd get a tough problem and they'd be like, oh, could you could you like go maybe spend half a day or so. We're going to time box it and go like think through the problem and see if you can figure it out. And I was getting crazy. I was like this. I, no, I can't. Like it literally makes me want to climb the walls when people do that to me. And then I started digging into this research and found that like extroverted people, they need to talk out loud. They need to whiteboard. They, they need to have other people to bounce ideas off of. And they can certainly try to do the other stuff, but they're going to be way less effective. And so now if anyone asks me to do something, I'm just like, that's great. I'm going to grab a couple people from the team. I'm going to go in that room with a whiteboard and we're going to cover the wall with stuff. And I come out of things so much faster, but it's because I understand it's what I need. And sometimes I might have to grab an introvert and be like, listen, I know this isn't your comfort zone. Even if all you do is be a rubber ducky and sit there and let me talk, <laughs> it's going to be hugely helpful for me. And so it's, it's interesting in that it's, I think in some ways started conversations with other people I work with where we're just more comfortable saying, this is what I need to be successful. Can we do it this way? Like can I have a half like an introvert? Can I have a half an hour to go mull on it? And then we can sit down and talk about it. It's like, absolutely, because that's what's going to make you successful.
0: Do you use the Clifton Strengths Finder at Polaris?
1: So we started to, um, we haven't dug into it too much just yet, just because. Having everyone take it is not the big deal, right? The harder work is now that everyone has it, we've got to lay all the results out and kind of talk about what it means. So it's actually, it's something that's kind of sitting on my backlog <laughs> of things to, to go through with everyone. So I've had two or three of my employees take it already. Uh, and it made for some interesting one-on-ones just because we would see that, Like we thought we were so similar, but then once we really looked at the Clifton things, we'd be like, oh yeah, like we both really care about results, but the way we get at them is totally different. And I remember, uh, one of my, my coworkers, who's a friend of mine, we were on a gig together and we really enjoyed talking to each other and we got along spectacularly outside of work. And then when we started working together at this client, like we'd get in these meetings and I'd be like, oh my God, this is the best. I'm, I'm really being able to be, you know, get through the things I want. And he would be sitting there like, oh my God, shoot me. Like this is killing me. And so we did the Clifton Strengths Finder, And when we compared it was like, oh my gosh, like I'm totally the like big vision, creating connections and understanding processes person. And he was the like, just tell me what to do and I'm going to go get it done. I don't want to talk about the big picture stuff. So like once we figured that out, we would just divide and conquer differently. And the whole thing went so much better after that. So I, I would like to eventually do this with everyone on the team. But um, I think part of it is we're, we're hiring a lot of people right now. We're, we're trying to like let the dust settle on all these new people joining the company. And then uh, at some point I will look at doing Clifton Strengths StrengthsFinder with, with hopefully everybody.
0: It's one of those weird ones that it's often missed that in companies... Or in any organization, they don't realize that the biggest part of whatever they're doing is people. Like in software, it's people requesting it, it's people building it, there are people that you have to work (laughs) with on a day to day basis, there's someone who's accounting for the money. You know, you've got nothing but personalities and attitudes and interpretations. The actual software itself is obviously important, but it's not the hardest part. And yet we put so little time into it. So, like, I can think of many times I've worked in teams. We had no idea whether this person was good at something or bad at something, outgoing or um, introverted, and we never accounted for that. Or, you know, we might have a session where everyone has to sit in a room and throw points out for an agile thing. But maybe, you know, in your case, someone wants to think for half an hour about it, but they're under the gun. You have to estimate it right now. And we don't we we lose, again, the, the idea that it's all people.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. People is definitely the hardest part of, of building software. And I mean, I certainly think the attitude is shifting, but for the longest time, I feel like there was this, the whole trope of like developers sitting in cubes with headphones on, not interacting with anyone, but that, that doesn't create good software, right? It, it maybe creates some really cool, elegant code, but does it really solve the problems it's supposed to solve? Does it create software that connects with the end users? Like that's the the really... That's the really hard part. Like you nailed it. Like people are messy, people are emotional, people are complicated, and wonderful, right? And it's it's kind of coming coming to terms with like needing to understand that and make sure that you're meeting people where they are and that everyone has what they need.
0: I made a podcast a few months ago with Arthur Dohler. He was at DevUp when we were there about mental health, and you know it's it's one of the things that people often don't think about the person you sit beside maybe struggling that day. And it might not be a serious mental health issue. It might be a minor one. But, you know, go over, ask them how are they in a genuine sense? And that might change their whole day. But let me ask you the the, the, the core question we're here to answer now. How do you build a strong team if we've if we've figured out <laughs> the introverts, the extroverts, the the strengths, the weaknesses, the Myers Briggs, the everything
1: else? So there there's definitely some some things things to do to build the team, right? So we talked about some of them, which is understanding people's strengths, really being intentional about how you build teams, thinking about how people are going to mesh. Have you have you covered all the bases? Like, is there someone on your team who tends to think more strategically and high level? Is there someone on your team that's kind of tactical and more of a go-getter? Like having all these people to balance each other out is certainly a good thing, but let's also be honest. You're not always going to have this perfect mix. Like. Maybe you do only have like four introverts that are available to be on a team. That's where some of that strong leadership comes in, which is making sure that, okay, maybe that team needs more one-on-ones. That team needs a little bit more separate time, but someone's got to make the effort to pull people together. So it's being very conscientious about it. Um, There's also kind of some basic stuff that that I see as patterns for, because there's kind of building the team, but then there's actually keeping them. Strong and making sure that it's a kind of a long-term thing. And and some of the things I see that make people successful are maintaining consistency. Right. So don't don't mess with the team if you don't have to. There, there's a there's been a number of times we've gone to a client where they struggle to get things done, they struggle to get any amount of of real velocity. So like being able to ship products on a fairly regular basis. And we find out that every time a new project comes up, they like blow up all the teams. And they're like, well, we picked the three best people for that project. So we have to borrow someone from that team and borrow someone from that team. And it's like, so now all those people have to figure out how does that person like to work? How do they like to communicate? Like, how often should I check in with that? They have to relearn that every time you you blow up the team and reform them. So keeping teams consistent as much as possible is a, is a huge leading indicator of them being successful. Uh, making sure that they can effectively collaborate. Like collaboration doesn't mean they have JIRA or TFS or Slack, right? That's not collaboration. But making sure that like they're really Working together, they're really effectively communicating. They're talking to each other face to face. That can be really important. Um, making sure they have shared goals, right? If you have five people who all have five different goals, what are the chances that they're that they're they're going to collaborate? Uh, they're they're likely just going to be responsible for their thing and not even lift their head up to look around and go, "Is my teammate drowning? Like, do I need to 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 reach in and?" And so the the team knowing they can and being willing to swarm on things is, is another thing for strong teams. Being able to reach out, you know, say, hey, you know, it looks like you're having a rough day. Like, how are things going? Or noticing that someone is always quiet and stand up and being willing to say, hey, if you're struggling, like, let's go have coffee and we can talk through it. And then, you know, lastly, having the team actually be empowered to do things, right? If the power, if the team feels like, they constantly have to jump through hoops or get permission, or they need to talk to a manager every time they have to make a decision or do any of the things I talked about. Like maybe they want to have a new tool for organizing stuff. They want to be able to shift priorities a little bit so they can swarm and be more effective. Like they should just be able to do the right thing without asking permission. So those are, those are some, some kind of clear signs that I I tend to see at places where the teams are doing really well.
0: Do you think that sometimes structure interferes with that? So like, you know, having your JIRA, having to um, have your ceremonies, we need to do this on a Monday, this on a Tuesday, this on a Wednesday,
1: and so on. It can absolutely get in the way. Like, I think there's certainly a place for having, having a rhythm and having a framework because some people don't work well without a framework. I am definitely one of those people. I like having structure. Um, If you were to say, Hey, Angela, like, go into that team. You guys can do anything, however you want. I think I would probably have a panic attack. <laughs> like I like having some structure and some ground rules, uh, but being able to kind of flex to meet what we need. Like if we want to have stand up at two o'clock at the Panera on the corner, we should be able to do that. If our team finds that an effective way to do it. Um, if we, if we're like, you know what, we're, we're going to follow the agile stuff, but it's not really scrum and we're not going to necessarily use a tool like fine use post-its and and crayons for all i care right just do what works for the team but make sure everyone on the team agrees that it really does work for everybody um i, I was just talking to a customer today and they were kind of asking about the tools question as as they're going through a agile transformation and one of the things i said is like tools are not going to solve your problem like we don't take a tools forward approach because tools are never going to fix things like, really, they're just a good tool for keeping track of stuff and creating reports. It's less work than having to do it all manually. But um, at the end of the day, like, you can have a, you know, a totally effective team and tools may actually get in the way.
0: You know, to your point there that, you know, if if collaboration and talking with each other is the one of the more important things, If you're doing that successfully, you probably don't need some of the ceremonies. You could probably cut out your daily stand up because, well, you're talking ten times a day anyway. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's a kind of a prescriptive things. But as you said, it's a framework. And for some organizations, you need that. But what I have found is that the teams that are more effective need far less. Uh, They don't need the ceremonies because, well, they're doing well and they're doing it the way they're comfortable with. Where I found that the ceremonies can be useful is at the start or when you've, when you're struggling, because now at least you're, you've got some pattern that you can kind of go, well, we'll try this. We'll hope it works. And if it does great, if it doesn't, we'll try something else as opposed to, you know, cowboy coding.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And, and like in really large organizations, right, we've worked for organizations where there's hundreds of developers, there's dozens of teams having a framework helps because if they all have to do their own thing, but then also kind of roll up and share ideas and things across all of those teams, like having some boundaries that align allows them to line up a little bit better. But again, like only so much as you need and not more than you need is, is kind of the golden rule there.
0: There was something I came across a few years ago talking about teams. And it was the idea that if you change a team member, it's a different team. And I've experienced this, that, you know, there was a team I was on. It was, doing well. And we brought in someone who was difficult and I'm being very generous, a, a poisonous <laughs> character and man, you know, things went downhill from there.
1: Yeah. it's And I don't, I don't remember the name of this, the psychological phenomenon, but I was, I was reading a book. I think it was earlier this year called the culture code and the culture code is all about building effective teams and building strong cultures. And one of the things in the book is they talked specifically about, psychological experiment where they had a group of people that had been working together for a while that were working really well. And they specifically injected someone who was kind of not toxic, like they weren't a jerk or anything, but they were like, Oh God, like this is so hard. Like, I don't think we can get it done. They were very negative and like low energy. And they talked about how this previously like vibrant collaborative, like, like this, energetic team that was all motivated to get things done, like slowly started to like essentially come down to that person's level. So it's almost like the most toxic person on your team will, everyone will gravitate towards that. Whereas their, their experiment was like, maybe if we bring this person in, like they can all bring that person up. And generally that is not how it goes. (laughs) So yeah, you could bring on, you could have a totally effective team slamming through things and then bring in one person that could totally change the dynamic. Um, especially if you're pulling someone out, cause maybe you pulled out the person who was, who was like the, per, who was like the coach for the team or the motivator, whatever that person's strength was, it could have been when they came out of the team, nobody backfilled it. And now there's this big vacuum. Um, so it's, it's interesting how much of this at the end of the day really does kind of come down to psychology
0: Hmm. Any book recommendations along with the ones you mentioned? I know from your slides, you talk about drive and dare to lead. Are those are? your primary go-tos for this?
1: So I, my, my, my two more re- so drive to me is like an oldie, but a goodie. So I remember I read drive like probably 10 years ago when it seemed like everybody at every conference ever was recommending drive. And I was like, okay, I get it. I'm going to read the book. And I really liked it because it talks about the psychology of what motivates people And then Dare to Lead is something that I picked up maybe six or seven months ago, and it made so much sense to me in this position that I'm in now, because it's all about how to be an effective leader in a world full of messy people, right? Where you have to talk about vulnerability, you have to have really hard conversations, you have to be empathetic. And it's it's just, to me, Dare to Lead, I think I've read it now three times, because every time I read it, I pick up something new from it. Um, So I definitely recommend it to anyone who is either in a managerial position or in any kind of leader position. And you don't have to be a manager to be a leader, right? It's, you could be a team lead, you could be an agile coach, you could just be a QA person on a team who is like looking to, like build their leadership skills. Um, There's definitely some hard topics in that book. Um, So talking about things that you know, things that you have fear around or talking about things that make you uncomfortable and being open to sharing, sharing things very candidly with people. It's, it's been really interesting. So I, I've been a big fan of dare to lead. Um, and like I said, culture code was another big one for me recently, just because it looks at culture and team building from a lot of different perspectives. They talk about Pixar, they talk about, um, championship basketball teams they talk about the military and there's so many good lessons to to be learned from from both successes and failures there
0: i'll put in a few of the links to those books that you mentioned into the notes of the podcast but any final notes before i wrap up for the evening angela
1: um, you know, I think the only other things that, that I would share um, is so along those same lines in terms of the books is there's there's an, a, another podcast in addition to yours, Brian. Um, so one of our, our coworkers, he's actually an agile coach for us, uh, is used to be a, a, a basketball coach. He's actually still is a basketball coach. But now I think it's more um, younger youth leagues instead of college basketball and he actually has a podcast called Out from the Cube. Uh, and it's great because he talks about a lot of these topics, but he comes at it, I think, from a very approachable perspective. And I love listening to it because it feels like George is just talking to me as I'm driving in my car. And he interviews, again, people like ex-military, ex-coaches, like celebrities, kind of learning about leadership and team building and motivation and things like that. So I, I, I always want to share it because I know that uh, – I think he's he's just hit his 100th episode, so it's still kind of a young podcast. So wanted to wanted to share that out and make sure to, to, to give him some amplification there. Uh, and the other thing that I, I wanted to share is, um, so I'm speaking at a number of conferences coming up. I'm speaking at BS Live San Diego in October. Um, so if any of your listeners are going, I am going to be talking about building strong teams. So, so specifically what we've been talking about, I'm going to be presenting at those conferences. I'm also giving a similar talk about communication, effective communication at that conference, which is a local conference in the Wisconsin Dells that's coming up August 5th through 9th. Um, I've been a part of that since the beginning. So I'm, I'm pretty passionate and maybe a little biased towards the conference, but uh, it's literally called that conference and uh, highly recommend if, if people haven't checked it out that that they do. Tickets are still on sale. If you can bring your family, There's there's a family track Uh, And there's water parks. So what what more could you ask for?
0: (laughs) I I think that's about it. Angela Dugan, thank you very much for your time this evening.
1: Yeah, thank you, Brian. It was great talking to you again.
0: If you liked this episode, you might also like the other episode with Angela on imposter syndrome. That's episode 80. Or episode 117 with Arthur Dohler on mental health advice for developers. Or episode 75 with David Mead, Start With Why and Better Communications. The opening music was Return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was In the Sun by David Sezesti from the album Acoustic Guitar.